Hello and welcome back to Latinique's Politics Refresh. Uh, I am Robert D'Alessandro, as always, and welcome back to my friend Matt. How are you doing, Matt? I'm hanging in there, Robert. Definitely happy <laughs> to be back on the podcast. This is something I look forward to every single week. And I wanted to do it last week, but man, have you heard about this coronavirus thing, man? It is uh, <laughs> pretty serious, I've got to say. It was, uh, yeah, I-, I knew it was bad. Um, but you don't really know how it's going to affect you. It affects everybody a little bit differently. Some people experience no symptoms. Some people are knocked out for a day. I was knocked out for five or six days, just total fevers, nausea, muscle fatigue. But And even now, like 10 days, 11 days later, still some symptoms. So, yeah, can't wait to uh, get the second dose of the vaccine. So I and hope, you know, no one else out there has to go what I went through. But happy to be back. Well, we're very happy to have you back here. Um, you know, we're, we're glad you're going to be feeling better soon, hopefully. And, um, you know, the vaccine rollout is going well so far. So good. Um, our, first, uh, our first topic of today is uh, the Amazon unionization uh, vote that went down in Alabama. They, the workers only voted with 16% in favor of union, with the, um, the, the vast majority voting against it. Um, I've got a quote here. Labor advocates expressed dismay. Labor advocates, excuse me, expressed dismay after a push to organize Amazon. Amazon's Alabama war, warehouse was rejected by a surprisingly large margin of workers amid fierce opposition from Amazon. So, in addition to that, um, Amazon is facing claims that they intimidated uh, and strongly advocated against unionization, which, of course, a large multinational corporation with um, a ton of workers that do not pay them particularly well um, and punish them for all sorts of, you know, infractions would. Um, And Amazon, just an hour ago, uh, vehemently denied that it did anything along those lines. Um, So... Let's get into it. Let's talk about it. What does this mean for the future of labor in the U.S.? You know, we faced unionization as a country a long time ago. And, you know, workers united and fought for their rights. Um, However, as new corporations have emerged um, and new fields have developed, there have been a lack of unions in those industries like Amazon. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, well, <clears throat> coming from two ways, you know, my dad is a part of a union for, um, just say, a delivery company, um, and obviously he's a big fan of unions and he's a big union advocate. I think, you know, do the workers in Alabama, I would like to know sort of where they align politically or traditionally, like maybe they just aren't into unions. I think they're sort of like yeah a a lot of people who are sort of high-minded about this sort of thing and think about labor and write about labor, they're sort of envisioning that these workers are just like really fighting for their rights and they can't get it. And they're just, if they had the opportunity, they would unionize. But quite frankly, maybe the workers in Alabama just aren't aware of what that means for them, right? Like, is it possible they don't realize or maybe they've been told that unionization would be bad for their jobs, they might get fired. it's totally possible that Amazon's pushing that sort of narrative, right? I mean, it's totally against their interests to unionize their warehouse, right? Amazon's interests, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it, I, think, I think something else that could be playing into this is that, you know, Alabama is a deep red state. And yeah. uh, for years, and, you know, for years at this point, unions have consistently backed Democrats. Um, you know, not all unions, but the vast majority of them. Joe Biden was elected on a huge union push, um, you know, talking about strengthening unions. He comes from a middle class family and understands the importance of them. Um, and he, you know, he uh, Marty Walsh is his labor secretary, who is a major union figure in Boston. Um, these are these are people that these are Democrats that are fighting for unions. So if you are a, if you're an average Republican voter, you're probably not into unions in the same way, Um, even though it would do some, it would do a a major benefit for you, um, which is interesting to me. 
Um, yeah, I mean, if this is in Ohio or Michigan, you might see something totally different. I think the fact yeah. that it is in Alabama, that's just the culture. Like, they just, they're not thinking about it that way. I wonder, you know, to see that it lost as big as it did was kind of surprising because you would think just in general, like, if you're taking any, you know, working class population, you would be able to get like 30, 40% of people yeah. into it at least. But with this, it really looked like, it, it almost looked like it was fixed. <laughs> like, they were I, I know, right? Like, <laughs> the percentage is almost too low. Um, and, you know, you, there are pictures online of signs that Amazon, you know, the actual, the company put up uh, to demonstrate that their opinion on it. And, um, you know, I, I really doubt that there wasn't any interference by Amazon at large in this vote. Not, not, not like stuffing the ballot box per se, but, um, you know, influencing their workers and, you know, semi-threatening well, things of that nature. Um, well, I would not be, be honest. Sure. If they, if they unionized, there probably would be some sort of layoffs. Like, I mean, Oh, definitely. But the thing is, then you're locked in, but then you're locked into a huge legal battle over that, right? If they, if they, if they vote to unionize and they become a union, then they are given all sorts of collective bargaining rights that they're not afforded as individual workers. So it's. Right. But I think Amazon would take that lawsuit before wanting to unionize its entire warehouse. Like they'll. Oh, definitely. they'll put the cost onto the workers, right? Like, could Amazon afford to unionize and sort of give their workers more? Of course they could, but... Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos... They're a business. They're just not going to do it that way, right? They're just going to try to shift the cost onto the workers and onto the lower half of their... um, Yeah, on the workers. And they're just, you know, going to say, well, sorry, now we can't afford it. We have to make layoffs. Um, Right. Tough luck. And, uh, you know... Alabama, it's their job. They don't want to. I've heard some, you hear those crazy stories about the warehouses where people are like peeing in bottles and they have yeah, really they big just... time crunches and they work long hours. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, to be frank. Well, something that is interesting is that, you know, the figurehead of Amazon, the founder, Jeff Bezos, he is worth an ungodly sum of money, right? I had billions, just billions of dollars. Um, and he continuously is profiting off of, um, you know, his workers in this way. And it reminds me a lot of the situation that was going on with the Rockefellers and the other robber barons, where they had a near monopoly on an industry and the workers were trying to unionize and they would send in strike breakers or things of that nature in order to, um, in order to stop unionization. And our economy at large also reminds me of that time because we have one of the greatest wealth disparities, you know, in our history since, since the railroads and steel and oil were all under monopoly control. There is a, there's a concentration of wealth at the top that has been um, significantly speeded by Reaganomics. Um, And it remains there. Yeah, it does not trickle down. And it's, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about unions as a force to give workers more rights. But we've, we've seen this in history before. And eventually, I think it will reach a tipping point where um, unions eventually become popular enough with the newer companies and they secure, you know, better paying, better, better paying jobs with, you know, healthcare, good coverages, more protections for individuals not having to pee in bottles while they are running across the country on a deadline. Um, these are all things that I think will happen eventually, but will be a brutal long campaign just to get us back to where we were. Well, to your point, I mean, it almost feels like unions are like a relic of an old past, mm-hmm. really. I mean, unless they've been like grandfathered in, right? Or, you know, we're talking about like private unions. Um, they really like... I feel like labor, that sort of thing, is something that is much more popular in Europe. Like in in England, there is like that analysis of like class analysis, right? Where they focus much more on like the workers and the ruling elite. Like in America, there really just isn't that lens to view politics through. Like people, you know, it's like an old Republican adage, like poor people in America think they're just going to be millionaires someday, right? Like 
they're just well it's not only fun. that but also like the 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 um the lens of race instead of class is almost right. almost replaces it in the u.s right where you have a very diverse country that um you know where both where where it actually applies more on class than anything else in terms of like what is actually accomplishable however racism is you know a very pervasive um issue in this country so you know it's often it's often argued by progressives that if they could just unite white and black working class members of 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 America then then they could finally achieve the reforms that they wanted <clears throat> however you know other more nefarious people try to like consistently um aggravate those tensions and pit the those two groups against each other um to remain on top i'm uh i'm starting to get real alex jonesy now i'm starting to think that this like i don't like that at all <laughs> no no like, hear me out. i really that's <laughs> this, sort of, this thing that we've been going through in our culture this woke thing where race is really becoming the lens to which every single interaction between us is occurring when you're correct i think a lot of the times if you step back or maybe i hope i think this is the point that you're making it's mostly class that you're looking at it's mostly well that's that's the way we should be looking at it because the way if we you, should. you know if you like if you if you want to advance i mean d don't get me wrong there are there are certain issues that the lens of race actually yeah, need to examine because there sure. is extreme disadvantages for the problem right but when you when you scale it back even further you know you can go back in history and look at like when you look at like uh reconstruction in the south um you had white working class people who were basically just as poor as um, the people who had just been freed from slavery. And the plantation owners utilized racism and racist tactics to pit those two groups of people against each other. And that sort of strategy has been flowing through our history. And it's what well, keeps the extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. Well, and, and think about this. So in 2008, when you had movements like Occupy Wall Street, right, you sort of finally had people from the right-wing anarchist libertarians to left-wing progressives all coming together and say, okay, the game is rigged. We need to do something about this now. It almost seems like now these corporations have pivoted and they're now doing the woke politics stuff because they know if they just sort of, you know, they'll fly the flag, they'll put the stuff out on their social media that says all the right buzzwords, then they don't have to address the fact that they are really protecting, you know, the top 1% of this country. They're pitting yeah. us against each other. And, uh, you know, we should be uniting. Well, geez, I sound like Bernie Sanders over here. We should be. Yeah, I was going to say, you went, from, you went well, full political spectrum. That was funny. Yeah. Um, well, because, you know, people, who, you know, poor people have a lot more in common across, you know, racial boundaries. They, their enemy shouldn't be each other. The, the enemy yeah, is absolutely. an enemy should be people like Jeff Bezos who are using their using their money to influence politics in yes. you know nefarious ways. Yeah, I mean the 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 amazing thing to me is that Republicans uh are trying to rebrand themselves as the working class party, right? However, at the same time they're actively campaigning against HR1 which would get rid of dark money in politics and stop billionaires and co corporations from being able to spend all this money in our in our political system. Um so I don't think it's going to work because, you know, they're actively doing things to pursue the interests of billionaires, but we'll see. Um, I just, why, but why wouldn't it work again? Like the Republicans and Democrats have this game set up where they can just use each other as punching bags. And, you know, it's not like the, the Republicans, even though they may not be that they still have their base of poor working class. Oh, they'll always have their base. But what I'm what I'm saying is they're trying to they're trying to rebrand themselves to like capture Democrat working class populists. Yeah, they're trying to be yeah, populist, but, essentially. But I don't think that I don't think that works when Democrats, you know, are pushing HR one, which is favorable with seventy percent of the population, something like that, including fifty percent of Republicans. That's I mean, that's just not you can't you can't actively work against what you're saying and not have it hit you eventually. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I, think I mean, I, you know, like, I, I'm just saying, like, if, if you're, if you're, if you're peddling policies that are not popular, 
Sure. Right? How can you be a populist? It's it's a difficult yeah. line to walk. Is is it's, my is my thought? It is a difficult one to walk, but I think now, you know, now it's all branding and PR. I mean, this is what it is, right? I mean, it's all media, and it's how they present themselves. I mean, this is what they're doing. Like, to be frank, not I keep saying to be frank, but you know, Americans aren't really interested in policy. They're not. Like, that's not where the sure. money is. That's not where. Uh, the voters are, they're interested in the culture war. And as long as they keep that going, they'll be able to have a certain section of the base that'll follow them. And, you know, we'll go along. I mean, are Americans really talking about HR one? Like, you know, how many people do you know who know that what that is? Well, like I think I think that's not a great example for me, because like, I'm only friends with people who consistently talk about politics like you. Um, so, well, not only friends, but I'm primarily friends with those okay. people. I'll say me. So, my friends, no idea. They would not have oh, okay. any idea. Well, that's interesting. They, and this is something that we talked about two weeks ago, why I'm not the biggest fan of democracy. They don't even know who their senator is. They have no idea who, they don't pay attention to politics at all. I'm not, well, many people surprising. don't pay attention to politics at all. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, you know, you're, you say this as if, it's a bad thing. However, we just had like the election with the highest turnout of all time. Political engagement is at an all time high from minority races in this country, as well as youth. Um, you know, there are, there are signs that, you know, our, our citizenry is getting more involved. And I think that's fantastic, which is why you see right now a huge push by Republicans to try to stop that because they hate the idea of more people voting yeah, because they well, know that so they're going to get voted out of office. Well, I mean, not many people are high information voters. Like most people are one issue voters. They pay attention two weeks before the election and presidential elections are this big event, obviously. And the last one we had was so popular because Donald Trump was so, um, polarizing. No liked him. Yeah. Polarizing, frankly, but, Will like will that continue? Will more and more people continue to be engaged in politics? I don't know. I think I think there's a strong connection between voting for the first time and continuing to vote for the rest of your life. I think that or maybe not maybe not in every election, but I think certainly like if you vote once, you are much more likely to vote again. Um, I do not I do I also do not think you know Donald Trump fueled voter turnout, but they he fueled voter turnout also against him. So the people that you know, came out and voted for Joe Biden. Um, you know, if you are a Republican, a former Republican from the suburbs who just couldn't stand Trump, right? And you witness Joe Biden uh, basically oversee a vaccine rollout in our country that's by all accounts going very well. Um, you see him pass spending on uh, COVID and, you know, a hypothetical infrastructure bill that's coming up. Um, and both of those things do wonders for the economy. Um, you know, the stock market's at an all-time high if you're partially invested in that. Those are all good things. Those are things that change the electorate around um, sure. away from Republicans in a significant well, way. Well, this is the thing, because I saw something on Twitter the other day, and it wasn't anyone super popular. It just got me... It was sort of like uh, a window into the mindset of a certain person where mm -hmm. they were talking about how they said Republicans will never win another election and that the, the Democrats have the game locked up for 30 years. I just want to warn people because the only person to get more votes than, you know, Donald, Donald Trump. Than Joe Biden was, was Donald Biden. Trump. Yeah. I mean, right. so, I mean, like 75 million people voted for him. The game is not over. No, the game's not, the game's not decided by any means. But what I'm saying is if you, if you lose, Republicans were consistently competitive in the suburbs because of their fiscal priorities and keeping taxes low. However, if Joe Biden's able to demonstrate that if you're not making $400,000 or more per year, he's not going to raise your taxes, which is what he's demonstrating throughout his policies. And these, this, is, this is policy that people will pay attention to because it affects their bottom dollar. Sure. Then you look, at, you look at either a Democrat who, in general, we are running moderates, and unless you are a progressive district or state like Massachusetts, Vermont, California, um, you see, you will see a moderate Democrat going up against a Trumpican 
you will see because they are the ones that will win those primaries in no matter no matter what district because there are enough Trump voters in that district. So you will see a crazy person like Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert going up against basically I don't know if they're the same I think there's a little bit of difference. Matt Gates is, you know, obviously in a lot of trouble. I don't think he's the same thing as a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, they, I mean, I think like he does not spew the people. stuff. He, he, does he doesn't. He doesn't say the stuff that they say. However, he's the only person who's voted against the sex trafficking bill in the House. Like there are there are clear deplorable things about his career as a politician that come to light consistently in a very Trump esque way. Um, hmm. And so, so when you pit those two against each other, the suburbs kind of slip away from you. Um, and you're then left with rural districts gerrymandering to build up your majorities in the House. Um, and that only holds for so long. Eventually, you will see the dam break and um, voting rights will be brought into, um, you know, it takes one, one Senate race going the Democrats' way for voting rights to become law um, in this country again. And a huge that would be a huge win for civil rights everywhere. I mean, but voting rights, it's like we just had the highest turnout ever and there's more people engaged. How is there not voting rights? Well, the thing is, there's not voting rights because the House, because Republicans are trying to pass like 5,000 laws in different states against, you know, basically targeting black and poor people and preventing them from voting, making voting more difficult, um, requiring more IDs, which... Dis, you know, ID laws disproportionately affect black people, which who generally skew uh, Democrat. Um, you see, what? you see gerrymandering and anti anti dark money and um, you know ending Citizens United. All of those things would really be death blows to the Republican electoral system as it currently exists because they cheat and lie and take money mm-hmm. from billionaires to make their majorities possible. I mean, talk about taking money from billionaires. The Democrats also take money from billionaires. I mean, right. But they're, they're actively campaigning, but they're actively campaigning to stop that. Like they, like that's, this is, this is the thing. They're not, they're not equal. They're not equal parties on, you know, the same footing just because they take money from billionaires. There's one party that's trying to stop that system from existing, but takes the money because they need to compete. And then there's one system where you have, you know, voter suppression is the only unifying call for Republicans right now. I don't know if it's the only unifying call for Republicans. I mean, what's the other one? Hmm. QAnon? Unfortunately, (laughs) because there's a, you know, there's a small but meaningful percentage of Republicans who hate that. And, you know, there are elected Republicans trying to campaign against that. You know, there are. There are, there's, there's nothing that unifies this party right now because there's a civil war going on between there's Donald Trump and Mitch That's McConnell. Hard. And the, the only thing they can all agree on is that it should be harder for Democrats to vote. Yeah, well, I kind of agree with that, but I don't really care. Um, I mean, that's just like a messed country. up opinion to have. Um, I, 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 you know, there's study after study that voters just... People are not informed. They're not voting on policies. People are voting for a candidate that they think is cool, popular, whoever has the best zinger, whoever looks the best on camera. Um, you know, I would love if more people, would I, well, would I love? I'm not sure. If more people were as, you know, involved into this stuff as you, but that just isn't the case. I mean, the thing is, you're, democracy has long been heralded as the best political system out of a whole bunch of terrible options. There is no system better because anything that takes representation away from the people results in the people being exploited, killed, um, you know, well, authoritarians mismanaging the country. Their, their, communism doesn't work. Uh, authoritarianism no, does not work uh, in a way that anyone should be comfortable with. Yes, you might be able to, uh, you know, if you are an autocrat. You might be able to react faster to things. You might be able to do faster things. However, you are also much more likely to commit human rights violations and oppress your citizenry. So it's all democracy turns into inevitably. And this is something from the Italian school of political theory, uh, Robert Michels. The, it's the iron law of oligarchy. 
And that's what democracies inevitably turn into, because these are the people who have the means to get elected, are the people who have rich, powerful friends. They're connected. They can afford to, you know, take the cost of running. Um, and all democracies end up like the United States. The United States is an oligarchy. It's not, you know. I think that is a deeply cynical view to hold. But um, I, I mean, I think I respect your right to hold it because yeah. we have rights in this country, which yeah, most course. other countries do not have because we're a democracy founded upon freedom of speech and other rights. Sure, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, there's something to be said, and I understand it is a very privilege to be able to live in America, obviously, because I mean, the thing I mean, is, like, in, in, in other countries, in Russia, you couldn't say that, should. right? Like, Russia's an oligarchical, 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 is that oligarchic, I think, right? Oligarchic system. And you wouldn't be able to say that on this podcast. Yeah, well, they all are. Inevitably, governments just turn into oligarchies. That's just who it is. That's why, like, we have these families in the United States. It's very cynical, I understand. The Clinton family, the Kennedys, you know. Biden now is rich, powerful guy who got his start by helping credit card companies in Delaware skirt laws. Um, and, basically and now he is pushing for higher taxes on corporations and for people making $400,000 a year to try to, you know, beef up of our interest infrastructure, create millions of jobs and, uh, you know, revolutionize the American economy in a way he's, that hasn't been trying. done since Reagan. He's trying, but the, the gap keeps increasing. The rich are getting richer. Um, right. And that brings us back to unions where, you know, that's a, that I think there's going to be an ebb and flow of unionization in this country that. Um, eventually return some of the wealth back into um, the hands of the people. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. I would rather... Yeah, definitely, maybe. Um, but we'll see. There's a lot of hurdles that are, getting in, that are going to be in his way. So yes, I agree. In our, you want to move on to China and vaccinations? Yeah. Um, I actually saw something for the vaccines in China are actually not as effective as they first purported them to be. Not as effective? Some, yeah, like the vaccines aren't as effective as they thought. I mean, that doesn't surprise be. me at all. Basically, like they pumped out like a semi-complete, you know, vaccine model. And then their testing was, let's just give it to our population and see what happens. Yeah. Um, do you want to read about this? So, I mean, yeah, sure. China. Go ahead. No, you go for it. Oh, you got it. Yeah. So, I mean, we were talking about vaccine diplomacy, China sort of leading the way. So. We have here, you know, the U.S. accounts for 27% of the world's coronavirus vaccine production, but 0% of global supply beyond its own borders. Um, people want that to change. And I guess I would say is let's get everyone in our country vaccinated first who wants to get vaccinated before we start worrying about other people. But, you know, China's gotten a head start on vaccine diplomacy, sending millions of doses all over the globe. Experts say it's in America's interest to compete in the race to vaccinate the world and calls to start doing so are getting louder. Um, so I guess is is the idea here that China sending vaccines abroad is sort of buying them goodwill with these lesser developed nations? I think it certainly is. And I think I think the calls for the U.S. to, you know, as soon as it is as it is possible, start exporting our more effective, more tested, safer uh, vaccinations all over the world. I think that's I think that's key for a couple reasons. First of all, like you mentioned, you know that will buy us goodwill. It will you know signal to the world we are back on the world stage um, after years with Donald Trump, um, where we were protectionists but also antagonistic somehow. Um, and it will it will also secure the global economy because again, all it takes is a variant to emerge that is vaccine re resistant and we are back to square one, no matter what. Um, so, you know, I think that, I think that Samantha Power um, actually summed it up quite nicely in um, a foreign affairs. What, what was that head shake? Oh, I, I don't like Samantha Power. Obviously. Okay. Well, she summed it up quite nicely in a foreign affairs piece where she talked about how the U.S. is the only country that is able to actually orchestrate and distribute this vaccine across the world. And I think that's correct. You know, just because, just because China is sending those millions of doses all over the place, they might not necessarily, they, they don't have the reach, they don't have the ability of the US to do so. 
and in the same way. And I think even if we, even if we wait until, you know, we are, we're looking at August for 70% vaccine of the U S I think that would be a fine time to start to send doses sure. across the world. And, or, and, you know, right now, what we should be doing is laying down the infrastructure and the um, groundwork to be able to do so. So it's getting freezers and things of that nature, like setting up supply chains to come in three months. And I think, yeah. I think that could be something that would be really successful. Yeah, I think definitely we should start to at least start over here in North and Central America, start to vaccinate to our friends in Central America, start oh, going absolutely. down to South and South America, sort of almost a Monroe doctrine of like vaccine distribution. Yeah. And That'd then be great. start sending it over to, um, you know, Africa, North Africa, Middle East with our partners. I'd love to see East Asia. Like, like why not? Right. Yeah. Why not? Think, why uh, not directly Japan compete with China? Korea. Yeah, Cause they're not going to take the Chinese vaccines. Right. No, probably not. <laughs> well, think, like, what is Japan and, and South Korea doing? I'm sure they could do it. They're super, I don't think I don't think they have a vaccine developed is the problem. And I I don't think so. And I think that India is the major um, I haven't heard about one in any way. It's entirely possible that they have. Yeah, you're right. I haven't heard of one either. But but India is this major vaccine um, producer in a in a way that in in a not not developer, but they actually physically make the vaccine. So I think, you know, a partnership with India is something that the U.S. should greatly explore for that region of distribution of our Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson vaccines. The fact that we have three, by the way, is a huge difference between every other nation. We have we have three that are largely considered, you know, Johnson and Johnson's protection is lower, but is a one shot, which is extremely different and easier to distribute especially in parts of the world where you might not have repeat people coming back. I was going to say, well, that's going to be the difficult part in some of these underdeveloped countries is you have to get two jabs. Like, you know, right. But if it's Johnson and Johnson and you just, just one, right. And it's, you know, the freezer conditions for that are different. That's a significant advantage that we have had in using our capitalist system to develop multiple vaccines. Um, Really is the beauty of America that, we got three companies that were really fighting to be the first ones. And because of this competition, they all end up kicking ass, developing yep. a vaccine. And now, you know, you can go to your local CVS. I got my vaccine right at Walgreens. Went right oh, that's di- great. Or, I'm sorry, CVS. Went right down, took less than 15 minutes, and boom, you're out. I mean, that's amazing. And, it, you know, the fact that we are, you know, I'm 22. Are you, are you 20? I'm 26. You're 26. The fact that we are on the table right now, you know, that's remarkable. It's, it, we're in the 30s for first dose of vaccine, 20s for, um, 20s for fully vaccinated. That's third in the world. And we were starting at almost nothing when well, hey, Trump you know, left, right? Well, so that's, no, well I got to say, in, in defense of Trump, because I did write a little bit about this for Latinique, he's the one that originally went to CVS and Walgreens and, and sort of laid the groundwork and said, we have to make sure that people can just walk into these places and, and build that state partnership to say, CVS and Walgreens, you guys are going to be the ones to do this. Um, really fast track with Operation Warp Speed. You know, it's not, the problem with this is. I mean, he, I mean, he just like stopped the job for three months. So, you know, yes. No, he, I mean, the problem he, is. He, he did. I mean, Trump. he stopped, it like, he in, What? The problem is, it's not. Warp speed would have happened under any administration because right, this that's, was that's also the problem. top of the, you know. This is the top of the, it's the only like, issue. getting our mind. Yeah. What are we going to yeah. do? How are we going to do this? And he's the one that signs it. But uh, it was really forward thinking of people in the government to yeah. do this sort of thing and build those partnerships with local pharmacies. So people would be able to go down and get their jabs as soon as possible. I, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I'm just really impressed by the rollout. You know, when I went into my vaccine distribution center there was just there were so many people they were all really nice they were working long hours just to get everyone healthy and it was a consistent flow good social distancing everyone wearing a mask it just made me happy you know it felt it felt like the beginning of the end i don't have you seen the movie contagion Um, i have a long time ago there's a scene in it where people are walking around getting vaccinated 
and walking through triage centers, basically that it was, it was that that's exactly what it reminded me of. Um, you know, it's not the same at all, thankfully, in terms of disease severity in that, in that movie and this real life, but you know, it's, it, we're, we're opening back up. We are getting safe. Our critically, um, endangered people are getting vaccinated and they're going to be safe because of it. I think that's remarkable. And I think if we can share that with the rest of the world, once we've taken care of ourselves, like you said, um, that will be something that vaults yeah, America back into, you know, world leader status in a way that nothing else can. What do you think about, there's been a lot of, um, one thing I will say that has not been good on the vaccine front is the messaging around the vaccines. I think it's been just really? very inconsistent. I mean, I think it's been very inconsistent, you know, of what people are allowed to do, what they're allowed to go. Um, oh. The CDC has been frankly like, you know, they're scared because they want to get it right and they want to make sure that, you know, they don't want to screw themselves because, you know, people are, you know, doing things that end up being wrong. Yeah, yeah. But what you see a lot now is I'm worried that people aren't going to get the vaccine. Like a sizable number of Americans are sort of have this vaccine hesitancy. Well, I think that, I think that, you know, I think you can actually look towards Trump for that being the case. I think that, you know, it's 50% of Republican men. That's the largest group of people that right now are hesitant or refusing to get the vaccine saying they won't be vaccinated. Um, and I think that, you know, you had, you had a person who could have championed the vaccine. He could have gotten it publicly. He could have endorsed it. He could have said, this is great. We need to all do this. We're in this together. And he didn't because, you know, he's a sore loser and he lost the election and he wants to create chaos for the Biden administration. Um, well, but he also likes taking credit for Operation Warp Speed and stuff. Right. So I don't really I don't I don't I'm not a Trump whisperer. I can't tell you what's going on in his head, but I can tell you that, you know, taking the vaccine in private, not publicly endorsing it, not talking about it, not, you know, engaging in a, you know, even a public tour to promote the vaccine that, you know, if he wants to take credit for it, like fine, but, you know, get your people, the ones that are hesitant, the ones that do not want to be vaccinated. They are the Trump supporters. They are those people, you know, writ yeah. large. There are, there are, you know, there's a variety of people that hold this opinion. Um, but still it does seem like we are on track to hit that 70% mark. Um, and I think you're going to, I think also what you're going to see is you're going to see a disparity between different places of the country. I think the coasts and I think that blue controlled states are going to be well vaccinated. They're going to be open. They're going to be happy. And I think the disease is going to stop spreading there. And then I think you're going to still see a holdout in places like Texas um, where, you know, they have large population centers, but people don't want to get vaccinated. Um, and I, you know, that's a risk for a variant developing, of course. Um, but also at the same time, it's just horrible because these, there are, you know, the health benefits of taking the vaccine vastly outweigh any potential issues. And, yeah. um, and if you just keep going on this path, right, where you have, you have people reluctant to get the vaccine, you have anti-vaxxers there, you know, Bill Gates is, Bill Gates is coming to microchip you, you know, it's crazy, but it's, that's also synonymous with what the Republican party has become in recent years. Mm -hmm. They are the party of QAnon. They are the it's, party of conspiracy theories. They are, the election was stolen, which, it, you know, and this all fits like a glove for them. However, it's a nightmare for Republican politicians and the country at large. Yeah, because, you know, Republican voters also tend to be older populations and they're the people who need the vaccine. You know, yep. and this is something that we talked about the last time I was on the podcast. And this is why I think he has such a good chance to win the Republican nomination for president when it happens. And that's oh, Ron he, DeSantis. Oh, DeSantis, DeSantis is interesting. He, it's interesting to watch him talk. He's got, he's taken he's very emotions. Yeah. But he's also way more coherent. You know, he's actually believes in the vaccine and he's rolling it out because he has a very old population in Florida. So he's making sure that they can get vaccinated. His policies, um, you know, Florida is kind of confusing people why is the state open, but their cases have really gone down? Like, there's not this huge problem in Florida. I mean, I think a lot of it 
is the I mean, because it's, it's an outdoor state. Yeah, it's not, it's yeah. not like DeSantis is doing any magic. He's just, you know, there just no, happens I, I to be a, it's a hot state. I think, <laughs> but his handling of it as a Republican is going to propel him in Republican circles to be the guy. Interesting. I think guy. the guy is still going to be Trump. I don't I think he's going to run again. I do. I think he's going to run again. I really hope not. I if just, for no other reason, I, mean, I think he needs. The, I think he needs the money. I think he's going to. I I really do. I think he needs that political donation. Really? Yeah, I do. He's I starting think his, his social media. Right, but I think I think once he gets back on social media, he'll have that taste. You know what I mean? He'll have the taste of the political power he used to have. I think he hated being president. I think he hated doing the job, but I think he loved all the perks that came with it. Um, and I think he'll probably want that back. And also, you know, he'll just sow confusion into the whole race where you'll probably have, you'll probably have one Trump candidate, right? Running against a, you know, that, you know, cause Donald Trump hasn't really gotten in the race, but he might still, and you'll have one Trump candidate get in the race, you know, and, and say something like, oh, if Trump wants to run, I'll, I'll drop out. But if not, I'm going to stay in and, and win this thing for, for America, make America great again or whatever. Well, until, then, until this most recent controversy, a lot of people thought that was going to be Matt Gates. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, Gates is, you know, I, I put him, I put him very likely that he gets uh, arrested and indicted um, sooner rather than later. I think that the green, I think that Greenberg is going to flip on him. Um, and uh, but but back to this hypothetical race that I'm describing that probably won't come true because, you know, it's hypothetical. Uh, I think that you'll have an anti-Trump candidate running. I think you'll have someone, you know, who appeals to traditional conservatives and can win in states where Trump, you know, the Trump voters might not actually make up a majority of the Republican primary voters. Um, and he'll try to compete that way. You know, they're going to end up being I think I think DeSantis would have the best chance but i think that it's going to come down to they're going to run nikki haley and i can't stand i think they're going to nikki i haley. think they're going to run nikki haley um, too i think tim just, scott might run too tim scott's a you know nice guy i mean he's not he's not like super headliney like says anything super crazy he'll probably run i don't know if he could necessarily win the nomination though i don't know if he can win the primary i could see I'm, i think he's a better general candidate than a primary candidate sure. you know what i mean I uh, um, I was watching an interview with Nikki Haley and I can't I can't stand her because she's a you know a board member of uh, Boeing. She was just totally like she totally used you know it was total military industrial complex one hundred and one where like she's the governor of South Carolina. She gets all the contracts for the Boeing, goes and joins Trump administration, becomes a UN ambassador, quits and totally flips that into a board seat of Boeing. Yeah, um, classic you know revolving door politics. Of course. But she was giving an interview with Ben Shapiro. Oh, and I hate had, Ben Shapiro. I had to listen to it because I was like, uh, this, is what, this is what the people are listening to. He's super Yeah, you know, I, I read Fox News every once in a while just to like, you keep have up to know with what, what's going on. Yeah, you have to know what they're thinking. But oh, totally. But view of America is just like so fourth grade level, <laughs> like history book, where, <laughs> where she's literally like, the founding fathers created a constitution to make everyone equal, Ben. And you're like, dude, I, I, I well, what about the three fifths compromise, bud? Exactly. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I literally was like Nikki Haley, like you were talking to like, she's very boomer. And, uh, I just can't. Well, I mean, the th that's, that's the thing you're, there is no candidate that can recapture some of the, you know, more moderate and independent, and, you know, regular conservatives that Trump put off while also continuing to maintain the fire of Trump, right? You know, of that kind of crazy base that he has. Um, like, that's the, that's the issue um, in finding a candidate. I think DeSantis, you're right. I think that's probably the best fit. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think it's years. good. Yeah, it's three years. It's a long years. time. But I also, I could also see DeSantis. I, DeSantis actually strikes me as particularly smart. Um, if someone I disagree with on most issues, um, I do, I do think I could see him sitting out 24 and going 28. Um, if he wanted to, 
um, just because, uh, you know, 24, if Biden, it remains popular, if the vaccine distribution goes well, if COVID is defeated, if the stock market's still high, you know, no major recession, economic crisis, this is a re recipe for a repeat term. Just, you know, historically speaking, it is. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't know if Biden makes it. I, I really think Biden is a bridge. And I think uh, he's going to hand it over to Kamala at some point. In terms I of think running it, in 20. I think if, if Kamala runs, I think you will see a far more competitive and real field of Republicans in a way that you would not see otherwise. Yeah. Let's, uh, we didn't have this on the docket, but let's switch here and very completely from left field. But have you been keeping up with what's going on in Myanmar by any chance? I'm, I'm generally aware. I'm not aware of the, you know, the individual numbers of civilian casualties every day. It's, I think it's six, there, 600. There was, there was 600 today. As in today, like that's the number. Oh, there, that's the, yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that report as well. Yeah, 80 um, people yesterday, they, Someone in the military, they, they like fired grenades into a crowd or something. Yeah. Um, and what originally happened with Myanmar was the former president, um, Sen, I, I don't want to mispronounce her name. Sure. But uh, I think it's Key is her last name, Sue Key. But uh, she was, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in like 1999 because she was fighting for democracy in Myanmar and she was locked in prison for like 15 years, eventually yeah. comes out, wins the Nobel Peace Prize. But then last year or two years ago, um, the, the military in Myanmar started clearing out the Rohingya Muslims right. in the, the west of the country, Rakhine State. Yes. And it's, so it's this weird like, you want to talk about a fall from grace, winning the Nobel Peace Prize to then being at the ICC on trial for accusations of genocide. Um, well, it's interesting, right? Because I think this coup has demonstrated that she did not hold the political power necessary to stop the military from doing that. Um, you know, they removed her in this coup. Um, but it's certainly, it's certainly a complicated and, you know, both light and dark history of this woman. Um, activist president war criminal potentially um who is now under house arrest and the military junta is uh running the country um but today these protesters you know these these democratic protesters that just will not stop it's amazing I, well because once they stop Oh, absolutely. Then, then the military just consolidates power. Like, I mean, yeah. if, if you're going to reverse a coup, it has to be quick. <laughs> it's got to be right. Yes, if you're going to reverse a coup, it has to be immediate. Um, um, but it, you know, CNN, I think they had a correspondent go and question one of the lead generals about what is going on. And he gave these very, you know, nothing's going on answers. Um, it's It's disheartening to see you know, a budding democracy um, so hindered and, um, you know, attacked by the military of their country. But this is something that's happened throughout history. And it's an you know, ebb and flow of the pe power of the people versus the power of the establishment, the power of military. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, I'm, but, you know, I'm worried. Well, I, the, I, the longer that they are in power, the more likely that surrounding countries will start to accept them and work with them, you know, as being the only people who are in town. Um, it is really sad, obviously. I mean, giant groups of protesters are just firing live ammunition into it, and they're uh, not letting any observers. It, it was right. You were right. It was CNN and also um, the Washington Post. They got taken on like a North Korea style tour. Where like they take you to certain places in the country, yeah. Like, like, that they have fine. like locked down, yeah. Yeah, that they have locked down. They follow them like with every footstep. But uh, the guy who is now the current military junta said they're going to hold elections in a year after the emergency goes down, and you know that's that's just not going to mm -hmm. happen. And it's like the emergency that you created. Oh, they might have them. I mean, you know, Sisi in Egypt is elected every year, sure, um, or not every year, but every election cycle. Um, it's, 
it's both incredibly heartening and disheartening um, to see what's going on there. It's remarkable from the perspective of a, you know, it's that the protesters are able to keep doing this and I wish them all the luck and courage and in, in the world. Um, but it, you know, it breaks my heart every time I read a new headline about that. Yeah, well, they're starting to form rebel groups in Myanmar. The different ethnicities are starting to form their own militias. Um, and they're sort of starting to fight back now. And so what you could see in Myanmar in the next few months is full-blown civil war. Like, you know, yeah. really breakdown of norms. Well, I mean, it, yeah, I, if you were launching grenades into a... Uh, That's war. Into a peaceful protest you will stir up enough resentment and hate and, um, you know, disillusionment of the government to create rebel groups like that. You know, once you, once you cross that line of live fire into protesters in a very public arena that even though it's not public to the world in the same way, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, many more casualties that are unreported in the world um, than there currently are. You, you alienate your population from your government in a way that is um, potentially fatal to any new government. Yeah, and, and you saw this happen in Syria, right? Like as soon as yeah. they started killing protesters in Syria, the entire country broke down into civil war. And what right. we really don't need is another Syria in Asia. Um, well, it'll be interesting. Terrible. We'll back one side and we'll probably back the other, um, unless we both end up back in <clears throat> protest. I don't I think the U.S. Seen, military government. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I haven't seen anything with, uh, like, I haven't seen any other countries, even like China. Like, I, I haven't either. I think the, I think the situation is too. I mean, I know that the U.S. Uh, either restricted or cut off trade um, from Myanmar. Yeah, they sanctioned. Yeah, they sanctioned yeah. them. Um, but Sorry. the, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. This will probably be an ongoing humanitarian crisis. Um, that develops in this country. Um, yeah, I mean, there was 400,000 refugees, the Rohingya, going into Bangladesh. Yeah. And now... And, you know, it are, yeah, you're right. It already was one. It was already a genocide. And then they, um, you know, this happened. Um, yeah. Well, I think that is all the time we have for today. Matt, I'm so glad you are back with us this week. Um, Thank you. As always... Good to be back. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you back. Um, as always, I'm Robert Del Sandro. Thanks for checking out uh, Lapsenik's Politic Refresh. Have a good one. See you next week.